0: You're listening to highlights from the Creative Processes interview with artist Jonathan Yeo. This podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. Some people are very good at you know, knowing exactly what they're going to do and what it's going to look like, and it ends up like that. I'm not one of those. I find that I have a vague idea. And especially if it's a portrait of someone else, it's going to shift a bit according to how the relationship develops, you know, because a portrait is a sort of little document of a relationship between an artist and a subject. And the way those personalities interact and what comes out during the sessions informs the end result, I find. And so you have an idea of where it's going to end up. And in my case, Kind of various sort of stylistic quirks, which um, mean that, you know, sometimes I leave a lot out or make suggested or do it in different parts and different styles, which again is something which is a little bit organic. I think a lot of this is true of all kinds of creative pursuits. This idea of how to be your own editor as well as the creator and whether you're even the best person to judge the success of something or not. I find that a lot of the process, what are you trying to do with a portrait? On a basic level, you're trying to communicate something about the essence of who someone is so you're trying to kind of figure out who they are not necessarily who they present themselves as it's the two things can you know quite often be different and then try and find ways of showing that through their face their posture any other context and you know i, I don't sort of deliberately leave out everything if there's something useful in what they're wearing or an object or setting then it makes more sense to have in there or makes the story more interesting or relevant than great but i try to avoid having distractions because my instinct is always to, to reduce down to the essential elements and we read faces you know it's obviously very very deep in our dna really our survival instinct that we are programmed to read faces in a very fine-tuned way you pick up in a split second so much information about somebody obviously their age their sex their sort of you know their mood their intent what might be is about to happen next from just from their appearance and you know That whole body language is important in that. But in faces, we really read micro expressions and particularly in the eyes and mouth in in order to sort of unpick those things and predict what's going to happen next in the conversation or in the relationship. Deep in us is this expectation that we are going to pick up all this information from the clues people are giving visually. And a lot of that comes from faces. I find people come and sit for me. They're often quite you know, self-conscious, as you would be. You'll be coming in to be scrutinized. And it's only after the sort of second or third time someone sits for you that you finally see them relax into it. And so what you were trying to accelerate that point at which they're sort of relaxed and no longer wearing a mask. And so I think that is something which I, I feel like sort of accidentally over the years, I've kind of developed ways of putting people at their ease. And some of it's about distraction, some of it's about instigating conversations and also getting people to talk about themselves, which tends to sort of be awkward on the first session. Some people are particularly politicians or actors or even just you know, anyone who's in any way a professional performer can take longer to get through to. And sometimes you don't know if you ever really got them. I think actors are particularly some sort of interesting paradox from an artist's point of view that I think we touched on it in the series. All the signs you're looking for, the clues about someone's identity and mood and character are things that they professionally distort. You know that's how they make a living. And so, the better they are at acting, you know, the chances are the more interesting they are as a subject. But at the same time, the harder in theory they are because they're going to be better at deceiving you with the same visual, you know, non-verbal communication. Johnny, you've got someone who being the person who was designed the iPhone was a, you know, very interested in photography himself. He mentioned to me one day, we were talking about doing a portrait, various people wanted portraits of him. He's quite self-effacing and, you know, doesn't really want to be the centre of attention. So I was like, well, I'm not sure I want to really have a big portrait of me. And then he mentioned this thing that when I was doing those self-portraits, that he'd been fascinated by self-portraiture as a kid, so much so that when he was, you know, doing his industrial design degree, he wrote his thesis on artists' self-portraits. Fast forward a few years, and we're all taking photos every day and learning really fast how to compose images and how to read images and what people would have been doing and why they've cropped it in a certain way. All these things which were kind of probably the preserve of artists, art historians in the past are suddenly things that kids are thinking about because it's the way they communicate with each other. So I think that shift's interesting. I mean, in recent years, got more into in technology and talked to a lot of people about visual technologies and how our eyes and brains work. There's definitely something in the fact that we don't see and certainly don't remember images like a camera does. Yeah, you know, the democracy of a camera, which takes up in every part of the frame, it gives its equal precedence. It's the opposite. We are very selective in what we record or what we absorb. When I go to the galleries and museums, I always find it very interesting seeing unfinished works because it gave you much more information about the artist's process. But I found also that very often there'd be something more intriguing about the unfinished works than the very finished ones that would often result from them i think years later i didn't go i realized it was kind of very often coming into my work that i sometimes find that the image of a picture that was half done was somehow more interesting than when i spent a lot more time on it and made it very sort of polished so those works you're talking about which were things which were derived i mean it started off on that side of by accident i was looking at some other technologies and i was working with google on a virtual reality thing and I was kind of spending a bit of time in California and I was put in touch with the Otoy which was one of the big Hollywood sort of VFX companies who were kind of like oh great you know you're the portrait artist we've got the best machine for scanning heads you know come on have a play with it and, you know, because they had a, a down day when they weren't doing something for George Lucas or other big budget production. And I hadn't really, obviously, yeah, paint is a two-dimensional thing. Yeah. You're basically taking real things, three-dimensional things, and making them into fake two-dimensional ones. And there's that sort of paradox. Yeah, the better the painting, the more it's playing this game. But at no point do you forget that it's a two-dimensional painting, even a really brilliant, convincing, yeah, realistic painting of someone it strikes a chord but you don't think that's an actual person about to step out of the canvas but you you know that it's an image of something but when you get into the 3d space some of those distinctions aren't there anymore and i remember i'm going to show david hopney the vr project been working on a few years ago and he put his finger on some of this quite well most art you know is about perspective Certainly, you know, kind of what he's interested in. And so whether you're doing a formal kind of traditional representation of it with, you know, kind of vanishing lines and everything, or you're breaking it up like sort of Picasso. Or what, you're still, you're playing along with these rules that you are playing with certain kind of mechanical rules of depicting something in two dimensions. As soon as you're seeing something in 3D, whether it's a physical sculpture or a virtual object, that's not there anymore because you're in the space with the thing, whatever's being shown. And see you in a very different place, and it opens up so much. I can wang on about this for ages. I do find it a really interesting area, but I think those pictures were play, with kind of kind of me getting my head around suddenly what all these things open up, and then also having some fun with the fact that you know sometimes when the technology was imperfect that the thing might accidentally look like something else. And in the case of some of them, you know, the partial scans would look like it was part of your head had fallen off, like a sort of ancient sculpture that had been damaged over time. And so then you need to depict those as a bit of marble rather than a normal face. They're having some fun at the moment with some scans I did a few years ago, which was using a bit of AI to sort of combine several different kinds of captures like 2D and 3D. But because the technology was very early, and I was deliberately doing it a bit wrong, they ended up looking like these gestural fifties, more mid-century sort of abstract expressionist paintings. And then I tried to go back to it a couple of years later to do some more, and yeah, the software had been updated, and it was doing it much better. So it didn't look as interesting, Uh, and so you have that sort of paradox of progress thing that this technology, which is evolving very fast, actually sometimes doesn't produce results that are more what you want. I don't know what it is, but I feel like the, the idea of yeah the kind of prioritization and not choosing what we absorb, but with our brain sort of unconsciously doing it for us is really interesting because I think there's an element that we might miss some things, but we certainly pick up the key elements very quickly and write those down and don't necessarily check all the books on the shelf or every leaf on the tree and all that sort of thing. I think this idea of actually sometimes leaving things out and not showing things like a camera shows them seems to strike a chord in a way too much detail, actually makes it feel less real, at least to me. Going back to how I started, because I didn't have set out to be a portrait painter, I probably doing that because I was quite good at drawing faces when I was a kid, and it was a way of you know, making a living in my 20s, which otherwise I wouldn't be able to do. But I also was sort of like trying to learn from looking at other artists' work. You have a different relationship with a portrait if you know something about the someone that's being portrayed already rather than seeing it cold, as it were. Which is not to say that like portraits of, you know, unfamiliar faces, especially historical ones, are really interesting things. But you you have more to play with as an artist if the subject is recognizable. Because you can I mean, apart from anything else, you can either reaffirm or contradict people's preconceptions or what very often happens is what you expect, you know, especially if it's someone who's very well known who comes in and you haven't met them before, you know, sometimes people are exactly who you you expect them to be, you know, the lovely sort of Jamie Oliver and all kinds of people who are exactly, their public persona is a completely honest and transparent one. I think the sort of the way you can bend the rules of what can and can't be made physically using these virtual tools is really exciting. And so the point of the sculpture was to demonstrate that potential. And I don't think I did it very well because I assumed that then lots of other artists would sort of follow and start using it straight away. Uh, I don't know if any have, but I think it may be also because the other gear you need is a bit of cumbersome and it may just happen gradually in the coming years. You mentioned this environmental stuff. i, mean, I just I'm spending a lot of time with David Attenborough I've been doing a portrait of him and I've got a lot of friends in that world. There's something weird about our psychology as humans that we almost all see that as a massive problem and have known this for years, really. And yet, you know, think that it's okay not to be doing more about it. And it's utterly baffling for people who are scientific minded like him that, you know, we're not, not seeing a problem and dealing with it. And I think that's a slightly sort of darker aspect of the human psychology, but it's, you know, that's undoubtedly going to be the dominant one, you know, in the coming years. I'm actually quite optimistic about education. I mean, I've been sort of a bit negative about some aspects of technology, but I think the education potentially will get better. I think you'll be able to make. You know, thinking about how I taught things at school and how reliant you were on whether you had a good or bad teacher for certain subjects, and that would completely dictate whether you wanted to, you know, kind of go into that area or not. Maybe I'm lucky that I had some bad teachers in other areas, and I quite like the art teacher. But I, I think the yeah, education is going to get much better for multiple reasons. I think you'll have tailored learning, you'll have much more interactive, and, and sort of involving experiences. I think there'll be more traffic between sort of technology and the arts, and I think we, you know, the tech world, needs more creative minded people. And less literal people, but who have a bit of an understanding of how, how things work. And vice versa, I think that there's a lot of room for people with sort of like bringing more science and engineering and other sort of skills into the art world to sort of free us up from this relatively niche media and genre that we have at the moment. And I think both will happen. I think it's exciting. So, if anyone's you know, listening to this, wondering what to do with their lives and whether to go one way or the other, I'd say, whatever way you go, don't totally give up on the other one. We hope you've enjoyed listening to these highlights. To listen to the latest episodes or learn more about participating in exhibitions or interviews, click on subscribe. Thank you for listening.